Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we have a successfully repeated founder. I mean, he's built, exited, you know, everything that we like to hear. So let's welcome our guest today, Ramji Sirini Basan. Welcome to the show. Pretty good. Yeah. Alejandro, great, great to meet you. Thanks for having me on. Hey, good to have you here. Good to have you here. So give us a little of a walk through memory lane. So how was life growing up in New York City? Oh, Long Island. It was awesome. Um, you know, if you've ever watched Jersey Shore, then you probably uh, understand Long Island. Uh, girls with orange tans, guys who drive Camaros. Uh, uh, it was a, a really fun culture and then um, loved it out, out there and then w went back to New York after I graduated college also. So, And hey, you know, you got the best of both worlds because in Long Island, you know, you got the peacefulness you got the craziness in the summer too but then you also had the city not far away so definitely you know like the best of both worlds now in your case you know you early on you got into into problem solving you know what how did that come about and then also what what was that thing that you did with when it came to light oh yeah so a good friend and i um were really into cars in in high school and uh one thing that he liked to do and taught me how to do is how to tailgate which is drive quickly and then drive behind somebody which is a huge pain in the, and i strongly recommend nobody does it but at the time it was fun um and uh you know he thought of this idea which is to put a brake light into the car that you're following and if you press on a brake then the 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 further the harder you depress on the brake the brighter the brake light intensity would be and uh and if it tripped and if it you know tripped automatic braking system abs then it would flash and so we decided to create a prototype of this and we entered into intel's uh science and engineering fair which is now called regeneron and it won third place in the team's competition so that was like my first entree into engineering it was really fun so then let's talk about to getting into actual, you know, business here. So you go into Stanford and basically you went there to do your, you know, pretty much mathematics. So it was like, a, so no, so you tell us, you tell us, what, what, what were you doing in Stanford? Because you did computer science there, but why computer science in Stanford where you had such great schools in the East Coast? Yeah, I mean, um, to be honest with you, the weather, uh, obviously, you know, I, the first I had heard about Stanford was in 99 that they had, a, um, or 97, something like that. There was like a, a team that was good at basketball in the final four that was also good at engineering. Um, so I thought that was amazing. So I was, you know, set on going to someplace warm after enduring so many cold New York winters. I was thinking about like Caltech or something like that or Harvey Mudd, but uh Ended up at Stanford. So yeah, to answer your question, yeah, I was I did computer science and did a master's in financial math also. Yeah, so you did your master's, and we'll talk about we'll talk about that in just a little bit because you also did, had a dropout when the good stuff you know started to happen in your life. But but we'll talk about that in just a little bit because one thing that that I wanted to ask you here is, you go to Stanford, here you are, you know, in the in the in the area you know of innovation of opportunity. You got all these classmates too, probably starting their own stuff. And instead of, of going in that direction, I mean, you decide to go into Wall Street, you know, come here back to, to the East Coast and, and, and pushing paper, pushing numbers. I mean, why? It was a very different time. So that was 2002 slash 2003. And then the Internet was over. 
it was it was done. You know, dot com boom bust had happened, et cetera. Everybody was laying off people, so e commerce was a fad. You name it. Um, so I definitely bought into that whole whole thing. And the, but the the real pivotal event that happened was nine eleven happened, and I was like, oh my god, I need to like enlist in the Marines or save capitalism. And uh, and so that's the two things that you know stuck in my head. And so I decided, okay, I'm going to save capitalism and go work on Wall Street, which I conflated with capitalism, and then later I realized that not exactly the same. So so that was really my part of my thinking. Um, also, you know, huge backdrop of you know that that tech was over, so to speak, and so like the stable Wall Street kind of stuff, which was you know highly prestigious. Didn't exactly know what I was going to do there, but it was very prestigious. So that sounded good. And I guess that uh, when you were there, you know, working in Wall Street, there in Morgan Stanley, there's one event that uh, really got you thinking, you know, really got you to wake up. And that was the IPO of Google. Why? Yeah. So that was August 2004. And, you know, it was an amazing hot summer. Everybody was out drinking, partying, having fun. And I was working hundreds of hours uh, or like 100 plus hours that week, sleeping under a desk. And I felt like, you know, the founders of Google were computer science TAs. And I was like, these guys are changing the world. And I'm moving around pieces of paper. I just I just knew that I wasn't doing something that useful. And so I was like, you know what, I got to do something with my life. And like, I got to get out of here. Otherwise, I'll be on a treadmill. And um, so I decided to, to, uh, to move on and uh, apply to B school. And, uh, you know, that was that was that. So back to Stanford. Yeah. Back to, yeah, exactly. Back to Stanford GSP. And in between Stanford and like uh, and Morgan Stanley, I'd read Paul Graham's book, um, Hackers and Painters, before he started YC. And there was a, a chapter there about startups that just absolutely struck me about like compressing your working life into a short period of time and then like uh, like why to do it, et cetera, why not to do it. And there was a, a thing about like why nerds are unpopular, which is like, oops, that doesn't apply to me. But uh, anyway, the rest, of the, the rest of the book was really interesting. So I like that. And um, that got me hooked. And it's like, I'm, I'm going to do something in startups. I thought it was mobile internet at the time, but it ended up being something else. So then what happened next? So I got to, I got to Stanford. And um, one of Paul Graham's things was he was very like anti-MBA in the book. So I thought, oh, did I make a mistake? Um, am I a dumb MBA? It's kind of like the, like, an, like an anti-VC sentiment sometimes. It's like, oh, they're just like paper pushers, which I, I don't agree with either of them now with the benefit of time. But at the time, I was just an impressionable kid. So I decided, I was like, okay, I'm going to drop out. But it's like, oh, then I need to do something afterwards. So uh, my brother and another uh, a guy um, contacted me about this idea in genomics. And um, it was like, okay, we'll make genomics the next internet. Which uh, is kind of like, I don't know if you know the movie The Graduate with Dustin Hoffman, but he's like, plastics. Like, yes, sir. It's going to be big. You know, <laughs> I, know today, I know today as much about solar power as I knew today, back then about genomics, which is like the sun powers stuff. And that's how you get solar energy. But I thought, hey, this is a great idea. Um, let me uh, drop out of Stanford and leave an extremely high paying you know, path in Wall Street and be broke on a futon and, 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 and do that. The other thing I had been thinking about was the prestige trap, which is like, I got into Stanford undergrad, I did master's there, I then got into Morgan Stanley, and then I got into MBA. And it's like, I was like chasing prestige after a, a while. And like, at some point, I got to think for myself. And that was also an important realization, which is like, if I didn't drop out, I thought I would just get stuck on the interview treadmill and then end up back in like banking and consulting and something like that. And 
the, I, that also worried me. And not to say that anything's wrong with that, but just like for me, that that wasn't the the path. So then, at what point does say you know the the idea of counsel really, you know, so crystal clear that you are like, I gotta go after this? I guess when I dropped out, so <laughs> I didn't think it was, I was like no at, at that point. Yeah, no choice. I was like, uh, I finished the first year, and I'm like, I don't. Have, I, um, so yeah, and then uh, the, our original idea was complete like nonsense. It was like, yo, you know, analyze a bunch of genomes and then predict who's likely to to respond to some certain like uh, or get like Alzheimer's or Parkinson's or cognitive traits, and it was just like totally off base. And we like banged our heads against multiple different avenues, but finally hit upon an idea that worked, which was. Um, what's called carrier screening for prospective parents that uh, we would screen prospective parents for genetic mutations that they could unknowingly pass on to their child. And if we found these preconception before they even conceive, they can do an in vitro fertilization treatment and have healthy kids. And this is something that resonated with us, you know, because um, we would all, you know, go on to have children. And so this, this all made sense um, as something that is not only uh, knowable, but actionable because a lot of genetics was stuck in the inactionable like oh you find out this thing and it's like destiny or fate and this was much more like okay you can do something positive about so then so then in this case you know for the people that are listening you know with counsel what ended up being the business model of the company we uh turned into a clinical lab so we were a clinical lab that served uh, a little over a million patients so moms uh uh, parents planning to have children, moms in their first trimester of pregnancy, and then hereditary cancer for women. We scaled to about 150 million plus in you know annualized revenue, several quarters of profitability. We filed a IPO. Uh, we we're uh, about to be on file with the with the SEC to do an IPO, but then ultimately got acquired by Myriad Genetics, um, and then uh, that was at the end of uh, 20 or um, midpoint of 2018. And we'll talk about that because, you know, one thing that is uh, real here is that you were at it for about 10 years and you experienced like different phases with the company. I mean, obviously, when you guys got started, you know, it was about, you know, for the world, you know, to 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 almost, you know, come to come to a screeching halt with the financial crisis. No? So you were probably able to experience that. Also, the issues around perhaps raising money around that time, how it really is the difference of going through cycles. So what did you experience, especially during those early days where all of a sudden you get started with the company and, and oh my God, you know, money is, is perhaps drying up a little bit? Yeah, I would say financial stress is very different than physical stress. And uh, you're responsible for many more people. You make a lot of promises. Um, it just, it's a, it's a very, very different kind of stress. And um, I think it's, it can be strengthening. It can be a crucible moment for, for entrepreneurs and their teams. Uh, or, you know, it can, it can crumble them and you can see people do, you know, really, uh, good and bad decisions, uh, that come out of that. Um, for us, it forced us really to, to figure out a business model that worked quickly. And, um, in wall street, I read Bezos' stuff about free cash flow, and it was a totally misunderstood stock and company. They're like, Oh, you know, Amazon is unprofitable, but they're looking at gap income as opposed to free cash flow. And Bezos got it from Buffett and got it from, you know, um, uh, Benjamin Graham and, um, and, and so on. So free cash flow and, and being cash flow positive was like really important for us, which is like how many tests we sell each month to break even. And so we, we focused a lot on that and tried to our best to um, get the company to place would be self-sustaining. Um, interestingly, 
as soon as we started, we ran into all these crazy perverse incentives with OBGYNs and in vitro fertilization practices um, that we later surmounted. But uh, um, yeah, to answer your question, it, it was difficult. There was no easy answer. There was just a lot of persistence, a, lo a lot of rejections um, <laughs> at the outset. And, uh, you know, that uh, hopefully gave us a, a little bit of a thicker skin. So then, so then, for the company in total, how much capital did you guys raise prior to prior to the acquisition, and also what was that journey like? Oh, about a hundred million, and uh, you know, it was uh, definitely highs and lows. Uh, we had some amazing investors like Founders Fund, Felices, and and so on, who, who were really great backers for us, and uh, and uh, I think that was a, that was a, a really uh, a good uh, journey in general um that we did have challenges with others um uh, who uh, i won't necessarily name here but uh, it's as many probably of the founders on your uh, podcast is, have, have noted is like pick your investors very very carefully and uh you know it can create a lot of positives for your company with the right team and right alignment or it can create an enormous amount of mental stress um so you know it just it just goes down to the specific person so then, so then in this case, you know, I know that, I mean, you alluded to it, you guys were on this path, you know, incredible revenue, uh, you had raised money from really amazing investors, and then you filed for the IPO. You know, at this point, you were about to get on private jets, you know, with the investment bankers eating shrimp on the private jets, you know, as, as some of our other guests, you know, have, uh, have alluded to, which I find hilarious, you know, shrimp and, and private jets. But but in this case, you know, you guys took a different turn, you know, in the end. So, so why did you go after the acquisition instead of the IPO? And then how did the acquisition come about? Excellent, excellent question. We, we didn't get, get the private jets and shrimp. We were like waking up at 6 a.m. <laughs> on the East Coast and then going back-to-back -back roadshow meetings in New York. So, um, which was fun also, like, but uh, um, ultimately I felt that it was quite exhausting to carry around this like shareholder dynamic for so long. Um, and uh, like, that was the real reason, to be honest. I mean, like, I think the company was great. We had an amazing 500 person team. All, a lot of those, you know, lieutenants have, have done incredibly well and, and built their own companies. Um, but the shareholder dynamics um, would be very tricky to fix and would probably take another several years to do. And, and that was, was probably the real reason. Like I, I, um, I never built the company to sell. Um, I never like started the company with the intention of sell, selling it. And to this day, I also don't believe that's a good philosophy. You have to build a company that serves a useful need and in a profitable way. And then if you get that right, then many options open up, including potentially acquisition. But that was never the goal, if that makes sense. I hear you. So what was that the, What was that process then of, uh, of the acquisition? You know, what, what was it going through that? Yeah, I mean, we ran a dual dual track, so we were um, we we were like filing our paperwork at SEC in in parallel. We we're also meeting with potential acquirers. Uh, we had amazing CFO, amazing uh, commercial team, amazing engineering, marketing team. So, um, what we tried to do is keep our numbers low in in projections during that process, so that we could beat and raise. That you know, like we were coming in below, excuse me, ahead of our projections, um, so that could inspire confidence on the part of acquirers or potential um, you know investors in the public markets. Which is okay. These guys said something; they not only uh, over delivered on that, but then you know, kind of out executed their promise. So that is, uh, in general, a technique, regardless of whether going public or doing a 
seed financing is is a useful technique. Hey guys, so pardon the interruption here. So I got to tell you that, you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard and already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back then when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance, you know, that would carry me through the process, whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition. So that gap that I found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when I met my co-founder at Pantera, Mike Sieversen, to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of um, a cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com. And we would love to take a look at helping you out. So that, that acquisition, I mean, incredible outcome, you know, 375 million, I believe, right? Yeah. You know, when, mm -hmm. when, when, when that happened, I mean, that, that's incredible. I mean, what was it like when you all of a sudden inked the deal? Because here you were for 10 years pushing with counsel and then all of a sudden, you know, it's like, wow, you know, like we took this to the finish line. Yeah. Uh, I remember the day after, um, and I was like, after all the yelling, fighting and like all the, you know, stuff, it's like, man, I miss that group. So <laughs> I, I never would have expected that. Cause I was like, Okay, relief. Initially, I was thinking relief, but then I was like, "Man, wow, we had, we had such a good crew." And it was—I I really like lo love the team and uh, all the alumni. I, I just I feel like I—it was mentally stressful fighting these like internal or uh, you know shareholder dynamics. Uh, so I think that was that was more the challenge as opposed to like uh, if that makes sense. But yeah, it was it was a mix of emotions. Relief, also okay. I know there's got to be a next challenge also because. Olympic athletes, when they win a medal, you know, be it bronze, silver, gold, or whatever, they, they, they get depressed. They're like, okay, I need to, and because they, they've finished their challenge, so to speak. So they don't, the adrenaline of competition is over. So I knew I had to think about the next thing. So then let's talk about the next thing, because the next thing for you was, you know, packing bags and going on a plane to China. Why China? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my dad was really big into, you know, learning uh, Chinese uh, when I was a kid. So, um, a lot of, you know, and COVID has changed a lot of my thinking because a lot of Indians growing up are like, look at China, China's doing well and we need a benevolent dictator like like China has. Uh, COVID completely shifted my thinking. We do definitely do not need that at all. But uh, in going to, uh, so I was interested in China and, and a lot of the things we're doing. So I went to Kunming in the south uh, east part of uh, China, which is like near Vietnam and, and all that. And it's like six thousand feet. It's an absolutely beautiful city. It's a it's a it's a small city in China, which means like you know fourteen Starbucks and two Apple stores and you know 
six million people or whatever. Um, uh, lived in a dorm there, um, studied Chinese, and then also uh, practiced MMA and, uh, and and learned some martial arts as well, which was really fun. So that was that was an awesome time. And uh, how long were you there in China in total? Uh, not, not super long, just like on and off for like probably about three months, but, uh, enough that I, I got the bug a little bit, got what I needed out of my system. Um, did a lot of life stuff, like learn how to snowboard, um, learn how to ski and all that stuff. And then, uh, decided to get back in the game. And so, uh, I came back to us and, uh, traveled a little bit and then, um, looked at three ideas. Uh, one was like an Uber for blood draw. Second was in men's nutrition. And the third was in minimal residual disease. Um, but uh, I ended up doing something completely different. And that's called Takeo. So walk us through how it happened, you know, and, and, and why you thought that this company was meaningful enough, the solution that was bringing to really execute. Yeah, good question. So, um, Long story short, uh, I had been looking at this Uber for blood draw, and I was either going to like buy a phlebotomy practice or do one, you know, or build one. And I've been coming close on a potential acquisition um, right before COVID. And it became very difficult to price any kind of deal because foot traffic to, you know, phlebotomy things just kept falling and, and so on. So I didn't know how to price a deal. I started to get very frustrated with the COVID restrictions. So I thought of like, you know, three things, which is, you know, Bitcoin uh, or crypto uh, testing and immunity and, you know, crypto to like reduce the ability of politicians to introduce restrictions to um, testing so people can feel like, hey, this infection fatality rate is low, maybe in the 0.3%. Uh, let's test and let's get back to work. And three, immunity, which I knew very little about. And um, uh, so I knew in the sense of like it, at uh, council, we had tried to do like Amazon Web Services style business where we like sell spare sequencing capacity to companies. So I talked to a company in immunology, but you know didn't know as, as much about it. But then I contacted Matt Spitzer. He had won an award on fast grants for characterization of uh, cancer vaccines or basically immune responses that could predict cancer vaccines. Basically, that means like what are the what is different about somebody's blood who can respond to a cancer vaccine and that could be potentially applied to COVID. So Matt and I got to chatting and I'm like, Matt is an incredibly humble scientist with amazing track record of cell science, nature papers, et cetera, to, to his name. And I'm like, what he is doing in immune profiling could be the next um, version of liquid biopsy, which I, you know, had a front row seat to it at council and um in um, in the prenatal field, and uh, in in talk with him, I'm like, oh man, well, we could actually build uh, a way more like a, a blood based uh, detection of your immune system that could be applied for cancer trials, that could be applied to autoimmune, that could be applied to infectious disease, um, and uh, that's that was a way more positive vision than whatever I was thinking about. Um, so we got to we got to chatting, worked together informally for about six months, and then incorporated in September 2020. And what ended up the business model of the company? What are you guys doing at Takeo? Twofold. First, uh, with drug companies, we uh, charge per sample. So it's 2,500 to 4,000 uh, 4, per sample uh, for uh, blood analysis. And we look at the you know immune characteristic or immune features of, of different drugs. So a drug company will send us like 10 patients, 10 responders, 10 non-responders. We'll run them through our lab. We'll do machine learning on them and say, this is the difference. This is why Alejandro responds and so-and-so doesn't. 
The second thing is our clinical tests. So we're building our own clinical tests, and we've uh, run a, a you know several hundred and about a few thousand samples left uh, to do to predict uh, response and non-response to uh, approved therapies that are already on the market. And uh, then we'd build our own clinical tests, similar to like what we did in council, except this time it'd be in cancer. So then what, how did you go about building the team here? Because obviously, you know, like you had learned quite a bit, you know, over the course of 10 years with your last company around team building. So how did you go about uh, surrounding yourself by the right individuals? Yeah, I mean, very uh, good question. I mean, the starting small is uh, is important. And then also um, another thing that we do uh, at Council and also at TACO is written assessments. So we have you know, in, in Zoom or in person, people with very strong charisma can sound good in an interview, but a written assessment can tell you a ton. And so doing written assessments can really help in terms of, you know, understanding the person's writing style, their ability to problem solve, et cetera, et cetera. So we use a, a lot of those. Um, having a very defined need, um, and this is a very common mistake in startups, and, and which is like, if you can't see that this person can solve an immediate need, like, first week, first 30 days, first 60 days, then it's probably not the right hire. People are like, oh, well, maybe in a hundred, like, you know, in a year, we might need this person. So we need to hire them now or so on and so forth. But that ends up not working out. Uh, and so seeing a, a path to a very immediate need is, is quite important. And, and and what about also the, the you know, as we are continuing here on the people side of things, what about the the surrounding yourself with the right investors? Because, you know, with the last company, you you were able to really understand well the fundraising journey and, 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 and getting the right people for the right reasons, you know, right there behind you, you know, behind the trenches. So how did you go about raising money for Takeo? Well, first, we, you know, we sat down with the financial plan, which is like, a, I also put my own money in uh, first, which is to back, to back the company initially. Um, and then um, once we felt like we've gotten the, our first initial customers, we got uh, validation, and we feel like this can be, you know, potential success and potential to grow. Um, we went back to some of our other investors from council and other days and uh, asked them to come on board. Um, that all started with, you know, understanding exactly what the money is for, how to get to profitability, um, how to build a business that uh, that meets a customer need. So I think that that needs to be at the outset, as opposed to, you know, what ends up happening is is raising money becomes a goal unto itself. Yeah, that's a, that's what you were alluding to, you know, earlier. No, it's people think too much about success when it comes to raising money. But at the yeah. end of the day, you know, I, I find that the best companies are the ones that are able to really show as a metric the 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 revenue per employee. You know, I think that that's really cool. Like, for example, when you see companies like WhatsApp, they're like acquired for billions and billions and they only have like 50 or 60 employees. Right? Like, that's pretty cool. Now, I guess, you know, when you're thinking about the authentic signals, walk us a little bit more through authentic signals. Yeah, very good question. So I I don't know if the, the, there's probably a term for it, but like the in 2015s there was a lot of talk about vanity metrics, which are metrics that um, sound good but don't actually mean something. So I I don't know if there's an actual term for it, but I just like say authentic signals. So you know renewal rates from customers are an authentic signal. Um, are they actually buying from you, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, we talked about raising money as a potentially misleading metric sometimes as, as opposed to an authentic signal might be our customers placing successively larger orders with you. Is the time to close new customers from lead to 
uh, like first called to, you know, signed order, is that shortening or, or is it getting longer, et cetera, et cetera. So those are the kind of things that are potentially authentic signals as opposed to just uh, headline measures, um, if that makes sense. Um, at Council, one of the things we did um, also was in carrier screening, there was a lot of competition on number of genes screened. And we thought that was didn't make any sense because if you're like a prospective parent, you don't really care about the number of genes you care about. Does this gene have a like impact? Uh, like, does this improve my chance as a couple of having a kid with this disease? So one gene can have a disproportion. It can be like a 0.3% impact. And 500 genes could be 0.0001%. So not all genes are created equal in terms of at-risk couple detection rate. So we created measures like at-risk couple detection rate that we better thought better reflected how parents and OBs thought about um, risk in, in genetics. Similarly, for TACO, um, you know, there's a measure of number of immune markers on a panel. Um, and, uh, you know, we're looking at things like number of uh, immune cell subsets that you can see. So we can see 600 plus immune subsets versus, which is basically like a 14 fold increase over, you know, classic uh, conventional technology. So I guess hey, in this regard, as, as, as we're talking about this too, I mean, if you were to go to sleep tonight and you wake up in a world where the vision of Takeo is fully realized, what does that world look like? That means that every, uh, every trial that's in immunotherapy, there are about 5,000 trials, is using a Takeo test. So hopefully for not only retrospecting, looking backwards to see why the drug worked or didn't, then also potentially to enroll patients. So, you know, Alejandro's immune profile is X, he should get on this drug or get on that drug. Separately, it means in clinical medicine, we've got tests um, that have like a big lift in survival, 30 to 40% lift in survival. So people who are getting these tests are living longer, healthier lives and getting on the right drug. Um, and third, if we do one and two correctly, we're putting 100 years back on the clock. Um, and, you know, we, we, we got one year because a customer told us that we saved her a year of development time had she not used Takeo. Um, but hopefully that's not just uh, drug companies, but also patients who are, who are spending more time with families and uh, whatever it is that the, their purpose is. So then, so then let me ask you this, you know, as you're thinking about testing, as you're thinking about product development, why do you associate stages of grief with product development? Oh, yeah. So this goes back to our first pitches at council when we were talking to um, OB practices and we had a test that we marketed as, oh, 100 genes for the price of one. And the OBs told us, if we test for more genes, we're going to find more positive moms. And we said, so? They're like, if we find more positive moms, we're going to have to talk to more positive moms. We said, so? so. And then they said, well, you know, our business model is, or compensation is 10 visits in a birth, $1,900. If you generate another visit for us, that's an 11th visit, and we still get $1,900. So then we went through, like, anger, denial, bargaining, like, oh, they should do this, they shouldn't do that, blah, 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 blah. So we went through all the seven stages of, of grief to Zen technological acceptance, which is like, okay, we accept this is the way things are. Let's instead build couple testing so that the father or husband, etc., can get tested either simultaneously or asynchronously. And then that that uh, result can be merged and the couple's chance of testing positive is way smaller than the mom's chance of testing positive. But that's what I mean about like 
rather than fight their incentive and argue or like deny that it existed, like accept that this is their incentive and then think, okay, this, this, these individuals are trying to do the best they can with this incentives they have work within that incentive um, uh, to make them more successful. And, and also why, you know, just, just going back to something that, uh, that I think is going to be interesting as people, because obviously now, you know, with, with, with two companies, and I'm going to ask you now, you know, something around, you know, lessons learned. I want to ask you about prenups in business. Why are they so important? They're so important because um, a lot of the startup advice is like, oh, don't ignore your gut, et cetera, et cetera. But mistakes happen because we ignore our guts all the time. So. So in in some ways, some ways, ignore it, like pay attention to your gut is important, but like, not that actionable advice. So uh, I was trying to think of like non obvious things like if you get a prenup in business, then you actually know what the cost of termination is. And both parties understand that upfront. And knowing that you can be a little bit like it's, it's not as um, it's not as like pessimistic or nihilistic as it sounds. It's like, actually, you could be more optimistic because you're like, okay, we understand what, what the costs are if we want to terminate this deal. And um, from that shared foundation, we can build, you know, uh, a partnership or, or what have you together. Um, so that's the reason is, is because people say, oh, well, you know, don't get into business with so-and-so and don't ignore your gut, but like ignoring your gut just happens. So it's like, rather than beat yourself up about ignoring your gut, Think about like just do a prenup. That's it. You know, it saves so many headaches down the line. So, so let's talk about you know stuff that uh, that perhaps you know like you would tell yourself if you were younger. So, if you could you know perhaps go back in time and have a chat with that younger self, you know that younger Ramji, you know out of Stanford, you know if you could give that younger Ramji one piece of advice before launching a business, what would be and why, given what you know now? Oh my gosh, one piece of advice. Um, I think really stand up for yourself, um, which, you know, ironically is kind of related to the gut point, but it's like stand up for yourself. If you think that something, you know, the New York City subway, if you see something, say something. Um, that kind of linchpin habit is very hard. And, you know, it's a muscle to cultivate like anything else. The more you exercise it, the stronger it gets. Um, so I think that would be the, the number one piece of advice. And from that keystone habit, I think a lot of good things would flourish. That's philosophical. On the more practical note, it's charge higher prices. Um, higher prices give you a lot more margin uh, for uh, not only you know uh, sales and marketing and so on, but it's actually related to stand up for yourself because if you know if your product is useful, then you should be able to stand by it and be able to to charge a premium for that service depending on the nature of the business. I love it. So, so let me ask you this, Ramji, for the people that are listening that would love to reach out and say hi, what is the best way for them to do so? Yeah, just shoot me an email. First name, Ramji at takeo.pile. Easy enough. Ramji, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. It has been an honor to have you with us. Yes, great to see you. All right. Thanks, Alejandro. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, Share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com. 
You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.